And let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts and our minds be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. As we continue in our journey through the stories of families in Genesis, I want to recap briefly. The Hebrew people, namely Abraham and his descendants, have been a bit of a hot mess. Abraham and Sarah lie and enact violence in the hope of getting their own way, not trusting the promise that God has given them. And the saga continues with their son Isaac and his wife Rebekah as they struggle to bear children and eventually have twins, Esau and Jacob. And as we heard last week, the eldest, the one expected to receive his family inheritance and blessing, is swindled out of it by his brother, Jacob. And indeed, Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of stew, and then Jacob sneaks into his father's deathbed wearing furs as a disguise to receive the blessing that was meant for Esau. And now, after there are many sons from Father Abraham through his second wife and through Ishmael's children, we come to a story of one brother fleeing another and of a promise yet to be fulfilled. And Jacob flees to Haran looking for a wife, but also for his life. And this weekend, with the release of the Barbie and Oppenheimer movies, I'm not sure that much has changed since the days of these stories. We still struggle with one another, with image, with blessing, with power, with ego, with gender, and with violence. And so today we meet Jacob when he's on the run. And he's in the middle of nowhere. And he lays down, grabs a rock for a pillow, and manages to fall asleep. And maybe that's the real miracle of this story. On the run and afraid, Jacob is so tired that he can fall asleep on a rock. But while he sleeps, he dreams. And in that dream, Jacob receives God's promises again. This time, not through his mom or dad, but directly from God. And when he awakens, he's so moved by this experience that Jacob names the place Bethel, the house of God. How awesome is this place, he says. Well, we could spend hours breaking down Jacob's dream, Jungian archetypes, or how this one moment fits into his life story. I'm really intrigued that this is an interlude of sorts, a pause in the mess. Here in the wilderness, Jacob meets God, lying, stealing, running from his brother Jacob meets God. And it makes me wonder, where do we meet God? Or do we meet God anymore? Is God's house anywhere at all? We often speak of our church as the house of God, and for many of us, that's not just a saying. We've met God right here in this place we call our church home. It's a place of stories of baptisms, weddings, and funerals, a place where people have learned that God loves them, that they belong, a place at the table. And I wonder, have you met God here 
here in this place we call God's house? I have, and my guess is many of you have too. Maybe it's when the choir sings a heart-stopping anthem or in the meditative song of Holden Evening Prayer or the Kyrie like we sung earlier, that you know that God is at home here in God's house. Or maybe when we pray for one of our loved ones with cancer or rejoice at the birth of a child or weep with those in Ukraine or elsewhere, when we share joys and concerns, we feel that God is at home right here surrounding us with family to share our joy and our pain. When the word of God shakes us to our core and wakes us up to see the kingdom of God right in the midst of us and we know we'll go out differently than when we came into this place, we're sure God's in this place. Happy are those who live in your house, ever singing your praises, writes the psalmist. And we're blessed, so blessed to know how true that is. But what Jacob discovered, what Jacob discovered in his dream along the roadside is that house of worship isn't the only dwelling place God has. And I don't just mean other churches, though they are, of course, God's houses too. No, it's bigger than that. As the psalmist says, even the sparrow finds a home and a swallow, a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord. God's house isn't just indoors in rooms set aside for God. In fact, God cannot be contained. Is that what Jacob discovered? That the whole world is God's house? He can flee from his brother, flee from his past, but he cannot flee from the blessing that God has bestowed on him. He cannot flee from God because God is there in the wilderness. The heavens are telling the glory of God, the psalmist writes. And honestly, who are we to ignore that? Now, I'm treading a fine line here telling you that you can find God in nature. Sure, you already know that, but what, what am I thinking? Plenty of you, maybe yourself right now, would just as soon be at the beach or on the golf course, rather than to sit here in these rigid pews. Or plenty of you would love to be meeting God on a patio, maybe with a cup of coffee or a mimosa in your hand, or walking in the woods, or dipping your toes in Lake Superior. And I can't say that I blame you. Yet it isn't an either-or choice. We don't either find God here or find God in nature. We don't either experience God in church or experience God's presence in the outside world. The house of God, it isn't either-or. It's both and. We find God here, and we find God in nature. We meet God here in this holy place, and we experience God in the glory of the world. God can't be contained, for God has made God's home in every place. Now, this isn't some New Age, post-Christendom, secular culture, happy-clappy, it's Hiawatha weekend talk. Over 500 years ago, Martin Luther said, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. And his contemporary John Calvin said, the skillful ordering of the universe is for us a sort of mirror in which we can contemplate God who is otherwise invisible. 
And even the most common folk and the most untutored who have been taught only by the aid of the eyes cannot be unaware of the excellence of divine art. Or as Jesus once said, those who have eyes to see, let them see. So today I'm asking you to see God in the everyday glory of this world that God made. Let me ask you again. Where have you met God? Where have you met God out there in the world as Jacob did so very long ago? For me, there are holy places, thin places, where I have felt the awesome presence of God. Mountaintops in the Cascades of Oregon and Rockies of Colorado with pine-scented air, rippling creeks and cascading waterfalls, ancient glaciers and thin air, alpine meadows. Life abundant, this is the house of God. And I felt the steady presence of God on the beaches of Lake Superior or in my childhood, the shore of the Pacific Ocean, where the strength of the waves lap over the sand, rushing in and rushing out, rushing in and Rushing out, echoing the reliable presence of the Lord. This is the house of God. I felt the peace of God in the sounds of the birds, the wind in the trees, the waves along the little songbird trail, and in the tender hand of the groomed lawns of Park Cemetery. In gardens wild and tamed with birds, bees, and flowers of all colors, there is no Monet or Van Gogh that can even do justice to the beauty of these places. This is the house of God. Where do you meet God in the world, as Jacob did so very long ago? Where do you stop running long enough to see the awe of creation? This isn't sacrilegious, it's faithful. For Jacob is hardly the only one in Scripture who discovers this, that the world is God's own home. In the Bible, as scholar Barbara Brown Taylor points out, people encounter God under shady oak trees, on river banks, at the tops of mountains, and in long stretches of barren wilderness. God shows up in whirlwinds, starry skies, burning bushes with perfect strangers. When people want to know more about God, the Son of God tells them to pay attention to the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. In fact, we do God an injustice when we separate God from the world's great beauty. John Calvin, living in Geneva, Switzerland, in the shadows of the Alps, with the glory of the vast lake in front of him, knew this to be true. And he once wrote these wise words. There's nothing more preposterous than to enjoy the very remarkable gifts that attest the divine nature yet to overlook the author who gives them to us. So this is what I boldly urge you to do today and this week. Stop. Stop and open your eyes to the beauty of nature, and for those of you who can no longer see or who can no longer see clearly, then open your ears and open your hands. Stop. Stop and drink in the beauty. Notice the colors of the flowers, the trees, the soil, the sky. Feel the water. Hear the birds' songs, the lap of Mother Superior upon the beach. Stop. Stop to take it all in and 
Then follow your heart to the author of this glory. Open your heart to the one who, whose awesomeness is in all of creation. Stop. Stop running. The messiness will continue like it does for Jacob in the next chapters, but for just a moment, stop trying to make blessings for yourself. Stop running. Stop long enough to taste and see how gracious the Lord is. The African-American botanist George Washington Carver, a brilliant scientist, once said it this way. Reading about nature is fine. But if a person walks in the woods and listens carefully, he can learn more than what is in books. For they speak with the voice of God. Amen.